0: used to play this game and um, like I mentioned it was more of a kind of a mental exercise that I would go through as I would try it was dark it would be dark outside and there would be no lights on in the house except for maybe one in my room and maybe one downstairs maybe one in the kitchen and I would think through my kind of my head I, I wanted to get from my room to that next lighted room and I would I would work through my head how quickly I could make my way through the dark because I didn't like the dark. I didn't like the unknown of the dark. And so I would try to navigate in my head how I would move around where I thought the couch was and where I remember the love seat was just to make it to that next lighted room. I would do this all the time when I was a kid. And it's not that I was afraid of the dark. I don't think I was afraid of the dark. And not that there was any monsters in the house or anything that was going to get me, but I just didn't like the dark. I didn't like it. There was something unsettled about it, something that just wasn't right about the dark. And as I grew up, the more I talked to people, the more I realized that people kind of had that same vibe that I had about the dark. They didn't like it. We didn't like it. We, 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 we wanted light. We like light. Light is helpful. Light highlights things like my imperfections here on, on stage. But, um, but we, we like light and we question the darkness. And in fact, from page one of the Bible, that whole interplay between light and dark is, at, is, is in play. Right from page one, right from creation, we see God break through the void, create the earth by saying a very simple phrase, let there be light. Let there be light. Let us break through that darkness and give you guys something hopeful, a light, something to aim for. And for the rest of the Bible, we see it again and again, light versus darkness, darkness versus light, until we get to John 8:12 and we see Christ play on that concept of light and dark. And he picks up these concepts now with this I am statement. Verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, "I am the light of the world." Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What you'll notice with this I am statement, similar to the other six, is they're all structured pretty much the same way. They're very simple to understand. Not much you can misinterpret about the statement. I am light, I am bread, I am the resurrection and the life. light. It's a very straightforward statement that Christ makes. It's, it's meant to um, elicit some response from the audience about something that they understood They needed a basic necessity like bread, light, life, the vine. These are things that people could get their head around pretty quickly and not question, well, what is he talking about? No, no, it's very straightforward what Christ is saying here and in the other six statements. And they're always followed up with an action. Most of the time, it's for us. Occasionally, Christ is the one that's acting his I am statement out. But most of the time, it's a call to believe. It's a call to follow. You've heard what I've said. Now come and follow me because of who I am. That's how Christ sets all these statements up. And this one here in John 8 verse 12 is no different. It's actually fairly simple to interpret. I am the light of the world, he's saying. I illuminate life to its fullest. I bring light to those who are lost in darkness. I bring life to those who are dead in darkness. If you follow after me, you can begin to see and understand what life means. That's all he's saying. It's as simple as that. It's an open and shut case. You would think, how could anyone misinterpret that? How could anyone miss that? How could anyone second guess what Christ is saying? But notoriously, or oftentimes, we'll see the Pharisees completely miss the point. And this is no different. We'll notice in verse 13, immediately following Christ's statement on, I am the light of the world, you would think the Pharisees, if they're going to challenge him at all, which they often do, they would challenge him on this statement, on the merits of this statement. But they go a completely different direction. They're often like us, right? They go a completely different direction. They detour. They're 180 in the completely opposite direction of what Christ says. And here's what they say in response to his claim about him being the light. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Where is, where, where is this coming from? Like, where, where, how can they get from I am the light of the world to now trying to play some legal loophole with Jesus about him not being able to testify on his behalf? What I love about Christ is Christ goes with it. Christ could very simply shove it down their throats and said, did you not just hear what I said in verse 12? I'm the light of the world. Why are we talking about this? I, he could very reiterate and call them out as not listening, not being there, mental, whatever it may be. You guys aren't listening, but he doesn't do that. He actually does the opposite. He goes with them. He goes with their arguments. He goes with their train of thought. He often does this in the gospel. He does this all the time in the gospel. He listens. He, he says what he has to say. He hears our response, which is often often left field, somewhere completely different than what he said, and he works us back slowly but surely as he's working with us to teach us what he wants to teach us. This is, this is exactly what he's doing here. John 8.14, now he answers. So he answers the, the Pharisees' questions, but as we'll see, he's going to start working them back to that statement about I am the light. 8.14, Jesus answers, even if I testify on my own by behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. Moving on. But I do not judge my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for for myself, verse 18. My other witness is the Father who sent me. As we can see here in this next part of the passage, Christ answers the Pharisees' questions. He answers their concern about his testimony, their, their, their diversion, their detour from what he was talking about. But he's also calling back to, I am the light of the world. He's also reminding the Pharisees of what came before And that shows up in two verses here in the middle there, verse 15 and 16. And there's certain words he's using to make the Pharisees think of a story that happened earlier in his ministry. Verse 15, you judge by human standards, but I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. This begs the question, how does these two verses you judge by human standards, but I don't judge. How do those verses, that, those words, these concepts have anything to do with verse 12? I am the light of the world. How is he calling? How is he making that connection? Well, he's calling back to a story that happened earlier in his ministry. Uh, we don't know exactly when. It could have been the day before. It could have been a month before. It could have been a year before. But everybody in the audience would have known about this story. It was the story of the adulterous woman. If you harken back to the first part of chapter 8, if you look back to the first part of chapter 8, that's when the story shows up. Now, you'll notice in your Bibles, most, if not all Bibles, have this section italicized. This story, um, as you'll note by the translation, is not a story that was in the original manuscripts. It's a story that happened, but it's not necessarily a story that has the same reliability that the other parts of John has. But it's there for a reason. Uh, a number of years later, the tradition will have taken the story of the adulterous woman and put it at the head of John 8. But in the original manuscripts, it's not there. And the question becomes is, why? Why, is this, why does this story show up later on in our tradition? Why is it, and, and what's the value of this story? Well, I think the author is doing the same thing Christ is doing with these words of you do not judge, and trying to make that connection back to the light by calling out the reference to this story. Everybody in the audience would know what Christ was talking about when he says, you judge by human standards, but I do not pass judgment. Everybody in that audience would know that. And they would know that because they would remember this story. So let's read that story, and I'll kind of walk you through why Christ is saying what he's saying, how he connects back to the light, and how this story becomes critical for how Christ then moves forward With his teachings. Verse 8, it's top of 8. 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and he placed her in his midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, In the law of Moses, it's commanded for us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote this on, this started writing something on the ground. So you'll notice that at dawn, the Pharisees have dragged this woman in front of Jesus. Dawn is important, and I'll tell you why in a second here. But it's the morning. The woman gets dragged in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees are solely out there to test Jesus, to try to trap Jesus, to try to accuse him. If Jesus says to the Pharisees' question of what should we do with this woman who's caught in adultery, and he says, nothing, well, how can this rabbi ever follow the law of Moses if he's not going to condemn this woman for an obvious sin? And they second, they, they're going to second-guess his ability to teach. If he says, let's stone this woman for her obvious sin, let's do what the law of Moses says, then he's got a PR issue on his hands. Because people will look to him and say, I thought you were different than the Pharisees, but you're acting exactly like them. You're not treating this woman with compassion. You're actually, in fact, following the law of Moses and working to stone this woman. She, he ha, he's, in a, he's in a kind of a point of um, a no-win situation here with the way the Pharisees have set him up for, for failure. So as Jesus does, as we're reminded, Jesus goes with it. Jesus doesn't just deal with it, run away. It doesn't say, oh, I don't want to, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say one or the other. No, he actually does something really odd. He sits down and he starts drawing in the sand. We don't know what he's drawing, but he just starts drawing in the sand. And the Pharisees just keep battering him, right? What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with this situation? What's your call? What's your call? And he bends down and he writes something with his finger on the ground. And as they continue to ask him, At some point, he stands up and he says, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her, John 8, 7. And when they heard this, and once more, he bends down and writes on the ground. We don't know exactly what he does. But when they heard this, they began to walk away one by one, beginning with the older one. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And, I, and Jesus said, then, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I judge you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In this story, we see that interplay show up again. This is the story right before he says, I am the light of the world. But we see that interplay of light and darkness show up again. Judgment and freedom. Life and And death, they all come into play here with this woman, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And this woman looks to be condemned. She's judged. There's no out for her. She's caught in adultery, and she's dragged in front of Jesus. The evidence is clear. She's doomed from this life of darkness that she had been living now to to one of death at the hands of the religious leaders. That was their intent for dragging her in front of Jesus that morning. But Jesus offers another path. He always does. and He offers it to her and he offers it to the Pharisees. But let's first talk about her. The thing I find fascinating about this story is the thing that's obvious, that most is obvious there, but it's often overlooked. It's the fact that her sin was literally done in the dark. The night before, She does her sin. Her indiscretion is in the dark. Now, in the morning, when Jesus wakes up, she is dragged in front of him, and the light of day reveals her sin, who she is. It's unhidden. She can't hide anymore in the darkness. She is now fully revealed for who she is, what her name is, and what she's done. It's at dawn that this encounter with Jesus happens, and that's significant. She's found at night and dragged in front of Jesus in the light of day. The literal images here are stark as the light reveals her sin for all that it is. She can't hide anymore. But the light isn't there to judge her. That's significant. Rather, it's there to just reveal what she's done. The light also does something else, and it's doing this for her. It enables us to see what is good. It enables us to see the full picture. There's hope here. There's this broken but redeemable person standing in front of Jesus, who I'm sure is shaking, who I'm sure is fearful, who I'm sure is thinking, I maybe have five minutes left before they kill me. Maybe. Maybe that. I have no idea what Jesus is going to do. I have no idea what this rabbi is going to do to say if he's going to condemn me and therefore just cause the onslaught of rocks to be thrown upon me. And it's in this moment that we see Christ in the dawn, in the light of day, see this woman for who she is. Not for her sin, not for what she's done, but for being a beautiful child of God that is redeemable. There's still life here. There's still an opportunity for redemption in this moment. But there's more to this. Not only is the woman caught in darkness, you know, this woman in darkness does her sin, but think about the religious leaders. What are they doing at night? They're going around looking to find people doing wrong. They're drumming up accusations. They're pushing their gossip. They're trying to find anything and everything that, they're sticking their nose in everybody's business at night. They're not any better than her. It may be a different package of sin, but it's still sin, what they're doing compared to what she's doing. And they're all thrown in front of Jesus in the morning, in the light. They all should have been asleep, right? That's what you're supposed to do at night. You're supposed to sleep. And if there's any practical application to this, it's go get a good night's sleep because there's nothing good that can be done in the dark, right? Nothing good can be done in the dark. That's what Jesus was doing. He was sleeping and then he wakes up and goes, okay, now we got to deal with all this nefarious stuff that was going on with the Pharisees, this woman, everything else that was done in the dark. Now in the light, let's deal with it. I often um, find myself in Las Vegas for work. And as I'm driving into the project office, every morning it's like 6 a.m. And there's nobody on the road, right? Because you're not up at 6 a.m. in Vegas. You're sleeping off whatever happened the night before, right? And I'm looking at the billboards as I'm going in and Whatever nefarious things are going on, they don't say nefarious things going on, the big club going on in the middle of the day. It's all after dark. It's all in the dark. Everything that is questionable happens in the dark. And we see it with the woman. We see it with the Pharisees. They both should have been asleep. But there's more to it than just that. When Christ says, I am the light of the world, and when he says that, The woman and the Pharisees hearken back to this story. They they see what Christ is saying there. But there's something that Christ is saying when he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He's saying, I'm not here to get rid of darkness. In fact, darkness is still going to exist. Just because I showed up on the scene doesn't mean that darkness just automatically goes away. When Christ returns, we believe that that to be the case. But what rather Christ is offering this woman, the Pharisees, his audience, is a way out of darkness. He's not saying, I'm going to get rid of the darkness. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you an option to leave the darkness. And that's what he offers this woman. That's what he offers the Pharisees. When he says in 8.12 that he's not come to take away the darkness, but rather offers a way out of the darkness, we see in this woman that Christ, um, this woman is experienced, was only left after calling out the religious leaders, that he doesn't judge her for her past, but instead says, Go and live without sin. Go, move beyond that sin. You've seen the light now. Now run to it. Go to it. Embody, embrace the light of who I am. And he gives the Pharisees that same opportunity in chapter 8. He tells them, stop living in darkness. Stop being shrouded by your religious hypocrisy. Break free of that. Live a life fully through who I am but they continue to miss the point. I'll go back to verse 18, where Christ is now, has now responded to the Pharisees' accusations about their testi- his testimony and how many witnesses he has and all of that. And he ends that, that line of reasoning, calling them back to that woman, that, that story of that woman, where they should have caught on to that. And he calls it and he says, I'm the one who testifies for myself, my other witness, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And their response should be, okay, you talk judgment, you talk condemnation. Ah, I see what you were doing. You were calling us back to that story where you called us all out on that sin. The light bulb should go on. The Pharisees should see the light and say, yes, Jesus is true. I get it now. But they don't. They still miss it. And in verse 19, instead of asking Jesus about what does it mean to be the light, how do I embark on that journey towards you, the light, they respond and they simply say, Where is your father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replies. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. In the temple courts where that young woman was dragged in front of Jesus as an adulterous woman. And where this story all unfolded. Where Jesus was able to say, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. We're talking about light here. That's what we're talking about. And he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The Pharisees continue to not get it. The woman gets it. The woman walks away and lives a life for Christ. The Pharisees don't. They continue to question and challenge Jesus, but not for what he says, but for who he is and all these other random things. They're looking for for spiritual or uh, legal loopholes as they're sitting in their darkness not understanding what Christ is saying and why he's saying it so much so that they're in their darkness that they can't even see him to seize him and that's kind of funny you be like well Jesus was right there right he was physically in front of them but you'll notice in the other aspects of the gospel there's other stories in the gospel where his hour had not yet come he'd be saying something and then all of a sudden he would vanish and people would go where did that Jesus guy go Everybody knew what he looked like. He was a popular figure, and yet he was able to just vanish. I think part of that is, is because they were so much in the darkness, they couldn't even see Christ in front of them. They kept missing who he was, focused on something completely contrary to what Christ, was, what Christ was claiming, the truth Christ offered them. They just didn't get it. They couldn't see Christ right in front of them. And so then that leads us to kind of where I want to end this morning, We talked about the practical application of this verse, meaning nothing good goes on in the dark, so go home and get a good night's sleep. Wake up in the morning and do God's work in the morning, knowing that nothing good happens in the dark. The other one being that, you know, Christ offers us hope in his life. He doesn't take away darkness, but he offers us a way out of darkness. And that's the spiritual side of it. He's calling us to do that. But there's a third, there's a human Application to this, which is once we know the life of Christ, the light of Christ, we need to do something about that. The beauty of this "I am" statement is it's not just Christ saying it; he actually says the exact same thing to us. Matthew five, verse fourteen, in a sermon on the mount, says the exact same thing for who we are: you are the light of the world. Christ is the light of the world, and guess what? We can be that same light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give it light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Um, I I, I knew an individual. He's a man much wiser than me. He's um, since passed away. But he was a living embodiment of this verse. And he would, um, for the last probably 30 years of his life, try desperately to be this verse, to be the light for this verse. And the way he did it, and you would ask him, you would say, hey Dennis, um, what's in your wallet right now? And there'd be things like IDs, and credit cards, and cash, and all of that. But he'd always have a $100 bill in his wallet. And that $100 bill was assigned. It was assigned to somebody somewhere and he didn't know though who that was assigned to but he knew God would tell him when the time was right and he spent 30 years of his life giving away $100 bills whenever the spirit prompted him and sometimes it would be months in between when he would do that sometimes it would be days and he said one of the most exciting things was actually not giving it away and not telling you know it was great to give it away and to tell people to glorify God in these good deeds as this verse said, but he said some of the best things was then being able to run to the bank to go get another one to then say, Lord, what are you going to have me do the next time? Who is the person I get to next influence for you? And he didn't do it because uh, he wanted to feel good about himself. There was was a, a part of that, right? That happens when you do these things. But he did it to be the light. He did it to be the light of the world and to change people. And he had those great conversations. Sometimes he said the conversations were awesome. He could glorify the Father. He could glorify Christ and what he's done. And sometimes they just kind of fell on deaf ears, he sounded like. But he said, you know what? I just kept doing it and doing it because that was what God called me to do. And here's the challenge I have for you guys. Jesus is the light of the world, and he calls us to be the same thing. And I'm not going to claim that we all have $100 that we can just throw around and give to everybody. But think about maybe a different denomination, maybe a different, maybe a dollar, maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 20. Put it in your wallet and assign it to somebody that you are led to at that moment. And be open to that. Be open to say, Lord, I'm going to take this this thing that's in my wallet or in my purse, and when I'm prompted, I'm going to give it away. And I'm going to have a conversation with the person as to why I'm giving that away to glorify God and see what God does. It may be a few months before anything happens, before you're prompted. It may be tomorrow. You may go into work tomorrow and say, you know what, this $5 bill, I challenged my daughter, my five-year-old, I said, I'm going to give you $5, Addie. And the minute you see somebody in need, the minute you see somebody that you feel like needs this, this $5, let's give it to them. Let's have a conversation and give it to them. But therein lies the challenge of how one way, there's a lot of other ways, but one way we can be who Christ is. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So go and change the world for him. A dollar, five, $10, whatever it is at a time. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for statements like this where it says, I so clearly, I am the light of the world. I come to bring life. I come to bring hope. I come to bring a way out of darkness. uh, Darkness, the thing that, that we don't want, the thing that's unsettling, the thing that's uneasy. And Lord, as we go, as we go across the street to go eat lunch, or as we go back to our neighborhoods or as we go to work or as we go see our friends in the coming days and in the coming weeks, Lord, let us see how we can embody who you are as the light of the world. Let us change the world because of how you instructed us to do good deeds, to glorify you in heaven with what you've given us. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for how clear these statements are I thank you that you've offered us a way out of darkness. Lord, let us take that and run towards it and help others see that same light that you offer, that same life that you offer and everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.